Hello. Hi, listener. So this is Hell. Producer Alex here. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio host Chuck Mertz is on a winter break. We'll be back to live shows starting on Monday, January 3rd, 2022. Until then, we're playing listener favorite interviews from 2021. We appreciate all the guest ideas, topics, suggestions, and feedback that come our way all year. So thanks for programming the next couple weeks of shows for us. First up, we're replaying a July conversation with writer Chris Tomlinson on his book Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. Thanks to Wally R., Joel G., and Mark A. for suggesting this one. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, more hell coming your way in January. See you on the radio. This is hell. We've all heard the phrase, remember the Alamo. It has come to mean that Americans are willing to sacrifice their very lives to the last person in a fight for independence. But like many historical tales, that history of defending the Alamo has changed, has been altered. What amounts to a 185-year telephone game, telling and retelling the story so many times that it no longer reflects what actually happened at the Alamo and why it happened. Here to help us remember the Alamo in a more accurate way, Chris Tomlinson is co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, which he wrote with Brian Burrow and Jason Stanford. Welcome to This Is Hell, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on our show, and I apologize for my cold, so if every so often I have to cough, I I apologize. You're also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tomlinson Hill, the remarkable story of two families who share the Tomlinson name, one white, one black, and you produced an award-winning documentary film by the same name. So last weekend, I'm just flipping channels, and I stumbled on the NFL Network documentary series of Football Life that features a biography of LaDamian Tomlinson, the former star running back of the San Diego Chargers, and I did not realize until I was reading like halfway through your book that was you that LaDamian was talking to about your family and his family's connection. Can you just tell people what that connection is real quickly? Well, quite simply, uh, my great-great-grandfather enslaved uh, LaDamian Tomlinson's great-great-grandfather. And uh, my book, Tomlinson Hill, um, takes its name from the na- from the plantation uh, in Central Texas. And, you know, NFL Films invited LaDainian and I to go back and visit um, the house where he grew up, where his grandparents lived, which is built on the old plantation. So, because this, this brings us back to the Elmo, a lot of people do not want to reflect on their family's past slave ownership. When you show him the evidence of that ownership, How did you feel? Did you feel like it was something that you did want to hide, that you wanted to never know about and never admit to? Well, I mean, I felt compelled to investigate. I mean, I'm a journalist. Um, I'm curious about truths. Uh, I grew up uh, believing in the myth of the good slaveholder. Uh, My grandfather told me I should be proud that our ancestors had enslaved people uh, because it was an indication that we were uh, some sort of elite among uh, the Texans in history. Um, You know, and then I covered the end of apartheid in South Africa and I saw what a... um, what a plantation looks like and what that kind of enslavement looks like. And that's when I decided to investigate. This was not a story I needed to tell Ladanian. He had grown up with it as well. He grew up on the same plot of land where uh, the slave quarters used to be. So um, 
it was nice to be able to uh, make that connection and talk through not only the version of history that I was taught, but the one that he had learned as a kid. I'm glad that you mentioned that he was aware of it, because on Juneteenth, the New York Times ran a story featuring results from a poll that showed people in the United States generally have no idea what Juneteenth is about, and at which point the Times inaccurately described what (laughs) Juneteenth is about. As the Times' Isabella Grian Paz writes, also known as Emancipation Day, Black Independence Day, or Jubilee Day, Juneteenth celebrates the day in 1865 when Gordon Granger, a Union general, informed enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, that the Civil War had ended and that they were free. But as Gregory P. Downs, a professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and author of After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War, points out Union General Gordon Granger didn't bring liberation to the slaves by words he publicly read from a scroll, but by troops with fixed bayonets. Does a reading and awareness of an end of slavery actually ending Uh, slavery in Texas and that slavery not being due to military force. Is that all part of the Texas mythos? Is there any misunderstanding of Juneteenth that it's guided by the myth of the Alamo and Texas? Well, after after Reconstruction, uh, you know, Texans were looking for a heroic origin story. Uh, they were looking for a myth to explain uh, Anglo um, domination and uh, and a philosophy of white supremacy, and rather than reach back to the Civil War uh, for their you know in the lost cause for their sense of identity, they reached a little further back to the Texas Revolution, and the Battle of the Alamo uh, had its um, ha- had all the elements that you could create a great origin myth. Uh, you had, you know, Anglo men who fought, um, you know, people of color who were trying to oppress them. Uh, they sacrificed their lives so others may live. A good Christian story. Uh, you had the uh, legend of Sparta. Uh, within 48 hours of learning that the Alamo had fallen, Texians started talking about Thermopylae and how these were the Spartans of their generation. Um, so it, it was just this really appealing thing. And suddenly you didn't have to talk about slavery anymore. And that is kind of the point of our book is that after decades of ignoring the vital importance of slavery in, um, in the rebellion, uh, it's time to, to talk about it and be honest about it. So was, as, as, the, as the Alamo story tells it, was Santa Ana a dictator oppressing Texans, in particular these white heroes of American lore that were defending the Alamo? Well, you know, the, the Anglo-Texans um, actually had it better than just about every other Mexican citizen. Uh, Santa Ana had waived the new tariffs that the government was trying to collect. He had withdrawn the, um, the troops from the Anglo areas that the Anglos had objected to. But, you know, Santa Ana was a clever politician. Uh, he was interested in getting popular support for his decision to suspend uh, the Mexican constitution. And one way to do that was to uh, finish an argument that had been going on for a decade, and that was, you know, whether or not to abolish slavery in Texas. 
there is no doubt that Santa Ana was a cruel, uh, undemocratic person who is responsible for a lot of carnage. But he also made it clear that one reason why he was going to intervene in Texas uh, was to end slavery. One of the most, most bizarre and entertaining, humorous parts of your book is how you write about Phil Collins, who began his career drumming for the band Genesis and as a solo singer has sold millions of albums. Collins happens to be the world's greatest collector of aloe artifacts. He owns Sam Houston's Bowie knife, a belt said to have been worn by Travis, uh, Major Travis, and a, and a, a shot pouch by, uh, that was owned by Davy Crockett is said to have turned over to a Mexican soldier before dying, not to mention Alamo source cannonballs, maps, letters, muskets, powder flasks, bullets, swords, and even human teeth. Like many aficionados of a certain age, Collins caught the Alamo bug as a boy watching Fess Parker's Davy Crockett on the small screen and John Wayne's on the big screen. In London, the tabloids pretty much thinks that he's lost his mind. The Daily Mail called him one drumstick shy of a pair. In Texas, though, where he has donated his collection as the core of a grand new museum planned for San Antonio, Collins is a giant among men. He represents the apotheosis of Alamo traditionalism, which is to say he is deeply invested in the sanctity of the Texas Shrine and its legends of heroism. He is the ultimate true believer. How important is the Alamo story to a faith in, if not a loose religion around Texas? Do some view a retelling, an accurate retelling of the Alamo as blasphemy? Well, I think, um, you know, no doubt. I mean, the lieutenant governor here recently uh, banned us from speaking at the uh, at the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum because he objects to the story that we tell about the importance of slavery in why people were fighting at the Alamo. Um, Phil Collins is in many ways uh, a metaphor for this larger debate. I mean, he was five or six years old when the show uh, was broadcast in London. He drew the facade of the Alamo on his garden wall. His little toy soldiers fought and refought the Battle of the Alamo. And he's told others in interviews how he was entranced by this idea of having a, a, a higher purpose of, of self-sacrifice. And of course, all of this is, is really an invention. Um, the fighters at the Alamo had no idea Santa Ana was coming until he, when they could see him through a telescope. Uh, they had no opportunity to retreat because they were not prepared uh, for the fact that he would come up. Uh, Travis tried to surrender at the beginning and then just before the battle. Uh, despite what his letters say. So, you know, when you start poking holes in those things, um, it, it gets people really upset. And you mentioned those letters. How how well written were those letters? Because it seems like that's where the story starts. It's not like there was a, a published book or novel. It, it seems like it all comes from those letters. So how amazing were those letters? Well, they are extraordinary uh, pieces of, uh, you know, my friend uh, Stephen Harrigan, who, who, who's written much more about the Alamo than I do. He calls them literature. Uh, I tend to think of them as propaganda. But, you know, Travis was an attorney. He was not a soldier. He had never commanded troops in battle. He had no idea what he was doing. 
even though he held the rank of lieutenant colonel, except to say that he was an aspiring politician. And he knew that those letters would be published in the, uh, the Anglo's uh, propaganda sheet. And so he was trying to promote his career with those letters as much as he was trying to call for help. You also point out that many don't believe Davy Crockett went down fighting as John Wayne famously did in the 1960 movie, The Alamo. Almost none of them believe Travis drew that fateful line in the Alamo sand. To what extent do we know how Davy Crockett really died? Well, you know, the Anglo historians operating under the close eye of the uh, racist white Texas legislature of the 19th century uh, completely rejected every battle that was not produced by a, uh, a white person through some form of intermediary, uh, often, you know, some would wonder a psychic intermediary. Uh, the Mexican officers who fought at the Alamo, uh, they were no fans of Santa Ana, but they were professionals and they kept detailed reports and they describe capturing Davy Crockett, uh, how Davy tried to pass himself off as a naturalist who accidentally got caught up in the battle and Santa Ana, you know, brutally ordered his execution on the spot and his um, his guards leapt on Crockett and chopped him up and it horrified the other Mexican officers, which is why they wrote about it. Um, the initial reports in, 18, in, the, in 1936 reported that Crockett survived. The idea that he went down fighting was completely invented by Walt Disney. That's just amazing. You write that, you know, make no mistake, this is all very serious business in Texas when it comes to discussions about the Alamo. But then no other state prizes its history quite like Texas. Maybe it's the fact that it stood for a decade as an independent country. But once you get a certain kind of Texan talking about its history, well, you're not getting home soon. The first Texas-raised president, Lyndon B. Johnson, loved to entertain White House guests by reciting a poem about the Alamo his mother taught him. You then, quote, Texas-centric chronicler, the late T.R. Fehrenbach, the, saying the great difference between Texas and every other American state in the 20th century was that Texas had a history. Other American regions merely had records of development. Now, Fehrenbach is the author of Lone Star, A History of Texas and the Texans, which was first published in 1968. And according to Texas Monthly, is widely regarded as the canonical version of Texas's singular history. So how different is the history of Texas from the history of any other state? Is Fehrenbach to some extent correct when he says only Texas has a history? No, I mean, absolutely not. Uh, you know, we often talk about, you know, how Texas was the only state to join the United States as a republic. That's not true. California was a republic as well. Um, there were plenty of people who fought gallantly for their states um, in the past. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, Texans have a culture uh, that is, is somewhat distinct. Um, and in many ways, it's a very painful one. I mean, Fehrenbach uh, was a neo-Confederate. Uh, you read the original uh, edition of his book and it's blatantly racist and, and just really horrible. And yet, it, even though even though those things have been written out uh, of subsequent editions, it's um, it's still very popular and it's 
And Fehrenbach was an insurance salesman. He wasn't a historian. Uh, I think our biggest problem down here is that we can't convince professional historians to um, to really focus on these basic questions because, you know, to the rest of the country, Texas is a backwater. So was Fehrenbach's 1968 book, Lone Star, was it challenged when it was originally published for continuing myths like the Alamo? Was it challenged for, as you were just, just stating, its racism? Oh, it was immediately condemned by... Uh, many, many historians. Uh, but, you know, it was 1968 Texas. And, you know, when I was working on Tomlinson Hill, I read this one historian who said, yes, Texas has always been 20 to 30 years behind the rest of the country on almost everything, uh, fashion, uh, mentality, and certainly on cultural awareness. Um, and I think we were probably 30 years behind in 1968. And, Based on current events, I'd say we're still 30 years behind the rest of the country. Is there an underlying message within the mythos of Texas that it is independent from and better than the United States? Is is there this sense that that it's just better? Well, we had a uh, lawmaker uh, this spring introduce a bill to hold a referendum on independence. Uh, that he thought Texans should be allowed to vote on seceding from the United States. Uh, that's where we're at. I, I, I can't, I mean, where, what other state in the union is seriously considering uh, holding a referendum on secession? So is that secession, is that sense of superiority, is it in any way influenced by white supremacy and privilege? Well, I mean, undoubtedly, you you try to bring up the role of race of of racism and slavery in why the Anglo's rebelled and basically led to the United States stealing fifty one percent of Mexican territory uh, by the time it was all over in eighteen forty nine. Um, and, you know, people are clutching their pearls. They're denouncing you as uh, critical race theorists. Um, you know, a right wing group called the Texas Public Policy Foundation compared us to the 1619 Project. Thank you very much. I'm honored, but I'm also not worthy of that comparison. Um, it's I think this is it. I mean, this is we're distilling the debate really down to white supremacy and whether or not we're going to have an honest conversation about that. And anyone who tries to say, hey, we've only been telling half the story or maybe even a third of the story, because as you pointed out in the introduction, there is an African-American story of Texas independence. There is a Tejano, Mexican-American, Chicano story of Texas independence, but we've only been learning the Anglo version for the last 150 years. And when you try to say, hey, there are other versions of this story, other perspectives, you get shut down. And if that's not white supremacy, I don't know what is. It's also censorship. Is learning the Alamo myth as fact, to what degree is it mandatory within Texas K through 12 schools? Well, you're required to uh, teach Texas history uh, in fourth grade and seventh grade in Texas public schools. You are by law required to describe the Anglo fighters at the Alamo as heroes. And uh, also, thanks to this last legislative session, 
uh, teachers cannot bring up contemporary events or discuss uh, institutional racism when talking about Texas history. So uh, I think uh, censorship is alive and well, and uh, we're just beginning to have to fight it back. You mentioned uh, drawing the line in the sand, a uh, line that comes from the story of the Alamo myth. You write, uh, you know, it's the Alamo is more than a Texas symbol, of course. The Alamo is an American touchstone as well, a symbol of national resolve looming during the 1950s as an embodiment of U.S. determination to halt the spread of communism. How is the Battle of the Alamo presented as an anti-communist story? If it's about an oppressive dictatorial Santa Ana, why isn't it simply an anti-authoritarianism story? Well, this was my, uh, this was my favorite, this is my part of the book. Uh, I wrote, uh, I concentrated on the middle third and, uh, about the myth-making. And, you know, the Walt Disney in the 1940s was uh, anti-labor, anti-union. He thought uh, that it was a slippery slope to communism. And so he had ordered his writers to go out and find stories of American self-sufficiency and rugged individualism so that he could, um, he could fight back against this, collective, this collectivism that he thought was going to ruin America. And so the writers knew when they put pen to paper for the Davy Crockett story that they had an agenda, which was to take what was basically a buffoon uh, from who was a, a footnote in American history and turn him into some sort of stoic uh, man of principle uh, who gave up his life for liberty. Um, John Wayne was very clear that he was worried about the path that America was on, that he thought that the leftists were getting a foothold and that he wanted to turn the Alamo story into a parable for self-sufficiency and what he called true American values, which is probably why his book, is, his film is so preachy and awful. Um, he was hoping to defeat John F. Kennedy and give Richard Nixon a boost with his film in 1960. Um, and I think we have to remember at that point in the Cold War, you, we had two enormous nations, Russia and China, who were both communist, who were both threatening, who were both building nuclear weapons. And there was a sense that we were surrounded on all sides and that America needed to take a stand. Um, and the Alamo, um, if you kind of ignore the reality of what happened, uh, can stand in for that as a metaphor point out that the State Board of Education actually has standing orders that school children must be taught a heroic version of Alamo history, as you were just saying. But in 2018, when a teacher's committee suggested this was a bit too much, Governor Greg Abbott spearheaded a wave of online outrage that brought revisionists to their knees. Alamo heroism thus remains literally the law of the land. Those who challenge it have gotten a lot of hate mail, even death threats. So how about you and your co-authors? Have you received any death threats over your book? Oh, we have. I mean, I wouldn't say it's anything that uh, I consider to be specific or something that uh, I'm terribly worried about. But yes, people are writing that we should be eliminated, that uh, that we should be hung from a from a tree. Uh, a lot of offers to uh, beat us up if they see us on the street. Uh, you know, it's it's just typical uh, Twitter and Facebook trolling. So, and you're an experienced journalist, so you know the difference between when it's a serious threat and when it is not? 
Well, you know, I was a war correspondent for 14 years. Uh, I've covered nine wars, including two years in Iraq and and time in Afghanistan. Uh, I had a Rwandan uh, uh, genocidal militia put a uh, a bounty for my uh, for my on my head uh, when I was living in Rwanda. So yeah, I've 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 been I've been down this road before. Uh, it's just an absolute tragedy that. Um, that I, I'm being subject, that the lieutenant governor is shutting down my events, my speaking engagements, and I'm now receiving uh, similar death threats uh, from fellow Americans. So is the Alamo myth, is that nationalist indoctrination? Because that sounds like the kind of thing people in Texas, especially conservatives, would be against when it's being done by you know the former Soviet Union back in the day or communist China today. Is Texas practicing the kind of indoctrination in their schools that Texans oppose elsewhere. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, the most ironic thing about uh, the governor canceling our speaking engagement was that he sent out a fundraising email just hours earlier, promising his supporters that he was going to defend all Texans' freedom of speech against cancel culture, that he would uh, he would stand up for the First Amendment, and that uh, all these uh, anti-racists, and and leftists and critical race theorists would be uh, would find themselves uh, unable to squash um, to squelch freedom of speech in Texas, and then he turns around and does that exact same thing to Brian Burrow and I. Um, you know, it's 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 authoritarian um, and it's un-American, and yes, it's it's all about power and privilege. And when you talk about race and you talk about the role of slavery and how those things continue to reverberate today, we're challenging the power structure, we're challenging their privilege, and that's unacceptable to them. That's what I was about to ask you. What explains their inability to recognize it as censorship and indoctrination? Does the Alamo myth itself block that recognition? I think it does. I mean, we uh, interview in the book uh, a dozen Tejanos and Chicanos who grew up in Texas who describe how learning about the Alamo myth is the moment they learned that they were not full Americans. And, you know, that's when their little Anglo friends started treating them differently or start, you know, I remember how uh, there were kids when I was growing up who would punch Mexican kids on, in the arm and, scr- and yell, remember the Alamo. Um, it, it, it's such a hurtful myth. And the fact that people can't recognize it, I think, speaks to their racism. You also write of your approach and your co-author's approach to the research and writing of your book. We come in the spirit of patriotic Americans who prize their native land, but still aren't quite sure that, you know, George Washington literally chopped down that, that cherry tree. We grew up with the myths and legends of Texas history, and we savor them for what they are, myths and legends. But as writers, we also love facts, especially the facts of history. And we don't believe knowing the truth about Texas history makes the state any less unique or important. A patriot is, by definition, a person who vigorously supports their country and is prepared to defend it against enemies or detractors. Are those who would offer a more accurate history of the Alamo and not its myth defending the Alamo, Texas, or even the United States of America, by definition, is that disparaging the Alamo, Texas, or the United States? You know, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think that's the conservative argument. Um, and almost 
most of the time I'm all, as a, as a business columnist, I'm accused of being uh, conservative. Uh, I spent seven years on active duty in the U.S. Army. I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. I consider myself a patriot. Um, and part of patriotism is being honest and learning the lessons that history offers you so that you do not repeat the errors of the past. Um, you know, this idea that we have to, you know, uh, we, have, we have to toe the line and believe the myths and anything less is, is somehow anti-American or anti-Texan, um, I think is just intellectually um, dishonest and, um, and just small-minded. Uh, the story of Texas is so damn interesting if people would just uh, learn the true story. So you mentioned that you touched on this earlier. How is the Alamo understood by African-Americans? I, I think people can understand how it's viewed by Mexican-Americans. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they can understand how it's viewed by conservative Anglos. But how is the Alamo understood by African-Americans? It's, it's seen as... Um, really the first battle of the, uh, civil, of the Civil War. Uh, it is the first, um, you know, Je Jefferson Davis uh, was already in politics back then. Um, it was a moment where the battle for, the battle against slavery began. And yes, it was a loss, uh, Texas, uh, won that battle, Texas became part of the United States as a slave state, um, but that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And the fact that Anglos don't recognize that, I think is, is deeply frustrating. And I just wanna add that, you know, when I was working on Tomlinson Hill, uh, one of the things I realized is that I had countless resources to understand the Anglo point of view or the white point of view of Texas history. And there were virtually none from the African-American point of view. Uh, there were virtually, there, there are very few from the Hispanic point of view. Um, and yet, you know, when we try to give voice to those people, suddenly we're supposed to forget history. Um, you know, I saw a meme, they call it Confederate race uh, theory, where we get to keep the monuments, but forget the racism. We are speaking with Chris Tomlinson, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of American Myth. Follow Chris on Twitter at C.L. Tomlinson. You also point out that the tension between traditionalism and revisionism has never been on more viv vivid display than it is today at a moment when Latinos are poised to make a majority, become a majority of uh, Texas's citizenry. At such a fraught moment, one might have expected a sense of impending cultural change in the air, you write, and yet inexplicably at a time when the United States is undergoing an unprecedented reassessment of its racial history, the Alamo and its heroes have essentially been given a pass. So in your opinion, why is Fox News not making a big deal out of revisionist history when it comes to Texas? This seems to be ripe for media exploitation, claiming it's a threat to the greatest American heroes like Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. Why not claim that there's some huge push to get Fess Parker's Davy Crockett reruns off the air as another example of critical race theory in an attempt by the left to make white people feel ashamed. Well, you know, don't speak too soon. That that could be on its way. Um, 
these are still early days. I think right now, um, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, is perhaps uh, ruining the fact that he decided to uh, cancel our event because it's certainly gotten us um, uh, a lot more book sales than we would have gone otherwise. Um, it, July is typically a slow news month, so I think Fox could be on this. They could be on their way. Um, and to be perfectly honest, um, we, the reason we wrote the book was because of this changing demographic. It emerged from a column I wrote about how Texas has got to change its brand, that the Anglo cowboy who enslaves people and, uh, and kills people of color is no longer a good look when the majority of Texans are uh, people of color. So, um, and it's also the $450 million they were planning to spend on a new Alamo Museum to house the Phil Collins collection. Um, it's, we're, we're at a turning point. We're at a tipping point and things are getting tense. Both sides are, are, are mobilizing. And in many ways, I think we're just at the beginning of this fight. So is Texas and Phil Collins rewriting history, erasing the history of slavery in Texas for profit? Is this all about protecting the bottom line and the tourism industry of places like San Antonio and the entire state of Texas? You know, I I don't I honestly don't think so. Um, you know, the city of San Antonio, the business leaders that I know, I mean, I, my column appears in the Express News. I interview people down there all the time. It's a majority Hispanic city. Uh, they know the true story of the Alamo. They're comfortable with it. Um, I think the problem is the Republican primary voter who uh, hates the changes that they're seeing. They hate the idea that their cherished myths that they've tied their identities to uh, are, are being debunked. And they're expecting their, uh, in the age of Trump, they're expecting their Republican leaders to take a hard line. If I look at George P. Bush's behavior from going to I mean, he's gone from supporting a fuller, rounder telling of the of the Alamo story to digging in his heels for only the most conservative interpretation. Uh, Dan Patrick, Gov you know, Governor Greg Abbott, all these folks, they're just trying to make their right wing voters happy. Um, the business community in San Antonio, they get it They're They want to tell the true story because, frankly, they'll probably get more tourists that way than if all they're going to do is try to appeal to an over 60 Anglo male. You mentioned George P. Bush because he is the general land office commissioner that is overseeing the building or the plans for the building of this grand museum. You write that vast collection of artifacts that Phil Collins donated, the ones George P. Bush is proposing to build a $400 million world-class museum at the Alamo to house. Well, our research indicates that a whole lot of items in the collection are, at best, of questionable provenance. At worst, a lot of them appear to be fakes. And that seems par for the course, what should be expected. It's what you would expect from a museum retelling a myth as history that would be filled with false evidence. So how bad and obvious and frankly transparent is the poor evidence offered by Phil Collins to enforce the Alamo myth? Well, if I could just call out one item, um, Collins claims to have Jim Bowie's personal Bowie knife. Um, and we did a deep dive investigation into that 
we found, we went through the authentication papers that Phil Collins gave to the state of Texas. Uh, the most compelling of which are three psychics who have held the knife and said that they can feel Jim Bowie's spirit in it. Um, and then we went over and talked to the editor of Blade Magazine or Knife Magazine, uh, who was very familiar with the knife and said it was made by a British fraudster named Dickie Washer in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, you know, we can go on about the Davy Crockett pouch, Jim Bowie's saber, Travis's belt. They all have virtually no provenance at all. Um, and yet um, the, the, the museum that is, that is in possession of them, the general land office, George P. Bush, no one will be honest about how fake these, how misrepresented these items are for fear that Phil might take all, all of it back. But that wouldn't be bad for the museum. I mean, if it's fake evidence, it would seem like that would undermine any credibility they have when they opened up. Well, but the collection is is what they're using to justify the museum. As the collection goes away, there's nothing to put in the museum anymore. So you write that whether it's Maori activists defacing colonial era statues in New Zealand or South Africans, protesting monuments to the 19th century racist potentate, Cecil Rhodes, much the same thing is happening around the world when it comes to people questioning the Alamo myth. So when people ask why now, the common response is the police killing of George Floyd and its aftermath uh, because in, in global protests. Other than George Floyd's significant death and its visceral impact on all of us, why now? Is there something else happening here that we might miss when we only and solely focus on the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police? I think, um, I think we are seeing uh, the children of post-desegregation schools coming of age. We're seeing uh, children who did not grow up with these myths becoming adults and having their own children. I think we're seeing a demographic change where uh, people of color are the majority in Texas now, and they by 2040, they will be the majority in the United States. Um, you know, you look at a typical big city school district in Texas, and 85% of the children are people of color, non-Anglo, uh, not Anglos, uh, non-Hispanic Anglos. So um, I think this is a, a huge evolution of our society that started um, in with the civil rights movement and that there is an aged uh, and aging generation that is is desperately trying to slow uh, to, to stop this wave of change. Um, but it's, it's happening on every level. And what we're seeing around the myths like the Alamo is just uh, that's just the ripples at the surface. It's, it's a much bigger sea change. And you point out that according to the Alamo Trust's fantastically optimistic projections, building a new state-of-the-art museum could raise the number of visitors from 2 million a year to more than 8 million. But you describe the current site as kind of a bore surrounded by tourist traps. So why does it attract so many tourists and how many of those tourists are frankly just disappointed? Well, you know, the first thing anyone says when they see the Alamo for the first time is, wow, it's so small. 
Um, and then when they go inside and they realize it's it's more of a mausoleum than anything else, um, you know, they spend 15 minutes. Uh, I talked to the guy who runs uh, the uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not across the street. And he said, yeah, you know, the, our data shows that people spend 15 minutes in the Alamo and then they spend 45 minutes in my wax museum uh, because I put on a better show. So I think we all agree that... Um, that the Alamo, we got to do something with it. It hasn't been updated since the mid 60s. Uh, but the big question is, is what do we do with it? Do we concentrate on 13 days in 1836? Or do we talk about 300 years of history? Uh, do we talk about, you know, the funeral pyres where the bodies, the Anglos were burned? Or do we, do we finally recognize that there are 1800 Native Americans buried under the street in front of the Alamo with cars driving on top of them every day. Um, there, there's, it's such a rich history. Um, if we just, if, if we just treat it like the, the, the historic place that it truly is. Is the Ripley's wax museum, is that on the former location of the Woolworths, one of the first places where there could be uh, desegregated uh, eating in public? Yes. I mean, the I think it's the Tomb Rider uh, and the Ripley. Yeah, it's not the Ripley's Wax Museum. It's it's Ripley's Haunted House uh, that's in the building where African-Americans desegregated the Woolworths uh, lunch counter. Uh, now, I will say that because so many donors have bailed out uh, after this turning into a issue of race and racism. Uh, they've scaled down the plans uh, to only $250 million, and they plan to keep those historic buildings. But we still have no word yet whether or not they're going to recognize the lunch counter or the Native American cemetery um, that's between the Woolworths and the Alamo Chapel. But you mentioned this is, uh, could be as much as $450 million of taxpayer and donor money combined without state funding. Do you think the museum could move forward simply by raising money from the public? And I hate to give Fox News an idea because I'm thinking of a telethon hosted by Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, I sincerely doubt it. Um, you know, the... The other thing we know about the typical Alamo visitor is that they tend to be middle to low income. Uh, fundraising was not going that well even before the uh, racist white wing militia guys started uh, protesting the project in front of the Alamo with uh, assault rifles and uh, body armor. Um, I, I don't, I, I, this is not going to happen unless they stop dividing the community and pull everyone together. Well, you mentioned that uh, the people who are uh, carrying weapons and showing up in fatigues and body armor with assault rifles strapped across their chests. This is Texas Freedom Force that shows up at the Alamo. In your opinion, I mean, you're familiar with this. You were saying you were you've been you were in Rwanda. What is the likelihood of violence at the Alamo? Oh, I, I think it's very real. Um, you know, there's a, there's a monument to the dead that we call the Cenotaph. And there was a proposal to kind of move it 500 feet because it needs to be repaired. It needs to be dismantled. And they thought, well, let's, let's reassemble it 500 feet away into a better location. And they, these Freedom Force guys show up with their rifles and coolers and surround it and say they'll shoot anybody who tries to move it. Um, so, 
these are not um, th these are not impressive individuals. I spent a lot of time with them. I interviewed them, hung out with them, uh, and as a former soldier, I can tell you they're 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 kind of scary. Not that I think that they'll hit me if they shoot at me. I'm just worried about all the people, all the innocent bystanders they're going to hit. You write that George P. Bush admitted at a private fundraising event that he was still considering running for lieutenant governor. The current lieutenant governor, Daniel Patrick, who has a scale model of the Alamo and memorabilia from the John Wayne movie in his state office, was instrumental in the Texas legislature's providing $70 million to the Alamo project in 2017. In January 2020, he had approvingly toured the site and reviewed Bush's develop redevelopment plans, expressing no serious objections. After Bush's faux pas, Patrick turned on Bush and the Alamo plan to def and animal Alamo plan to defend himself. Bush became a backer of the heroic Anglo narrative. If you want to win as a Republican in Texas, do you have to embrace the historic Anglo narrative? Will you lose otherwise? Well, the the state Republican Party's platform says you have to believe in the heroic Anglo narrative, uh, and to vary from it will uh, will get you censured and possibly kicked out of the party. Uh, you know, Patrick and Bush have made up because Bush is now going to run for attorney general instead. Um, but yeah, there's no way you can support an honest telling of the Alamo story and still expect to win a Republican primary. Okay, so how about Democrats who do not support the heroic Anglo narrative? Do they have a chance in Texas politics? You know, I, I, I believe so. Um, when is always the operable question. Um, right now, a special session began at the Texas legislature. They are going hard, hard, hard right uh, wing. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing how deeply conservative their agenda is. Um, and who knows, maybe the Democrats will be able to capitalize on that uh, next year. You also write that Gene Powell, whom Bush appointed to raise the $100 million plus dollars needed in private philanthropic funding, stepped away from the Alamo Foundation. He could see where this was headed. You then quote Powell saying, all of a sudden, after years of agreement on telling the story of all the layers of history of the site, Everyone now seems to want this to be John Wayne's Alamo. To you, what explains Not, that? Sorry, to you, what explains that that turn? Uh, you know, I, you know, it's not everyone, right? It's it's a certain segment of the Republican Party that wants to tell the John Wayne story. Uh, they are very vocal. Uh, you know, we we've also seen polling where most Texans don't. You know, the majority of Texans uh, who don't vote, by the way, majority of Texans do not vote. They don't care. They really don't care. And, and so in many ways, this is a tempest in the teapot for the Republican Party. You, you write that, remember, the Alamo was a battle cry intended to inspire a bloodthirsty rage and a group of rebel, rebels attacking a national army. The Battle of San Jacinto was as much as anything a brilliant piece of psychological warfare. Position your troops where there is no retreat and flame their racist hatreds and attack at an unexpected moment. Sam Houston's victory was impressive, but Texas is a different place now. Is it? How far can inflaming racial hatred go toward political success in Texas today? Well, I mean, it will work as long as uh, Republicans continue to win elections. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, this the inflaming of racial hatreds, the, uh, the truly uh, despicable moves against uh, LGBTQ 
uh, people um, is slowly breaking their brand. They're no longer the brand of liberty. They're no longer the brand of, of individualism. They are now turning themselves into a, a, a right-wing authoritarian party. And I think every, the further they go down the road, they, they, that road, they, they, um, they, they make people uncomfortable and they push people out of their party. And so I think eventually, you know, with demographics, with uh, the changing uh, nature of Texas society, uh, they're just going to work their, they're going to work themselves out of a job. And you point out that what mu must change is the story we tell about the Alamo. To learn the lessons of the Texas revolt, we need to learn the truth about Bowie, Travis, and Crockett. Bowie was a murderer, slaver, and con man. Travis was a pompous, racist agitator and syphilitic lech. And Cro Crockett was a self-promoting old fool who was a captive to his own myth. They can no longer be the Holy Trinity of Texas, nor can the Alamo be the shrine of Texas liberty. But all three men did believe in liberty and self-determination. And Travis was one hell of a letter writer. They for freedom, just not everybody's freedom. And I, I think I might see like a consistency in that inconsistency. How much do those three men symbolize the contradictory nature of the United States more generally, a nation whose founders wrote about equality and all being free with one hand while holding slaves with the other, with, with those same words of freedom and, equal, and equality of all men, and then calling the native savages on their own land. So how much do they symbolize that kind of broken promise of the American dream? They, I mean, they sum it up. They absolutely sum it up. And that's the conversation that these people do not want to have is that the United States and Texas has this deep, deep uh, original sin that has reverberated through history, continues to reverberate today, continues to show itself in the police murder of, uh, of African-Americans. Uh, it shows itself in the uh, eight minutes, 46 seconds of the George Floyd tape. It shows itself in numerous police uh, interactions with people of color here in Texas. Um, and in order to address those issues, you have to acknowledge that the people who've had power and privilege all this time have to give it up. You know, you cannot be born a white man in Texas and still expect to have all the power and privileges that your father, grandfather, and great-grandfather or grandfather did. You know, my grandfather was a Klansman. My great-grandfather was a Klansman that bragged about lynching people. Um, they built wealth because they did not have to compete with anyone else. Um, and they could justify being in those positions of power and privilege by pointing out to these myths. My ancestors fought for liberty. My ancestors sacrificed themselves for liberty. Uh, those... Uh, those Mexican Americans, they can't be trusted because they're as much because they might have loyalties to Mexico. Um, one of the early governors, Governor Oscar Kulquit, wanted to. Uh, the reason why he supported uh, revitalizing the Alamo in the early 1900s was because he was ordering Texas Rangers to mass murder Mexican Americans along the border, uh, and he was hoping to deflect any criticism. 
by talking about the Alamo. Um, these, these are harmful things, um, and, and we have to stop doing it. You also write how the official Alamo story became entrenched by the state and eventually embedded into national politics and foreign policy with disastrous results, starting with Lyndon Johnson's inability to see military conflict outside of an Alamo framework and continuing into the wars that followed 9-11. LBJ actually cited the Alamo when it came to involvement in the Vietnam War. What impact could forgetting the Alamo, or at least having a true reckoning with its past, what impact could that have on U.S. foreign policy, especially when it relates to war? Well, you know, Johnson saw the South Vietnamese government as, you know, similar to the fighters at the Alamo. That that was that was his play was to say, hey, you know, Sam Houston failed to send people to support the heroes at the Alamo. So therefore, we have to send our young man to South Vietnam to uh, to defend the heroes in Saigon, uh, that was the parallel he was attempting to draw. Um, you know, and the depth to which this has become part of uh, Texas military culture to me is remarkable. I can't tell you how many forward operating bases I went to in Iraq or Af- or Afghanistan. Uh, and the soldiers would say, yeah, this is our Alamo. This is where we're going to make our stand. Um, it is this idea that, you know, that, that there's an honor in what happened at the Alamo that justifies us doing all kinds of things for people who are, quote, unquote, fighting for liberty. Uh, you know, I look at what's going on in Afghanistan now and all the people condemning the decisions to pull U.S. troops out. And I was there shortly after 9-11. I was at the Battle of Tora Bora when Osama bin Laden was uh, in the caves up in the mountain. I, I, was, I was embedded with Mujahideen. Um, and after 20 years, you have to ask, you know, if these people really are worth, you know, the defenders of liberty, why do they still need us there? Um, if, if these are truly defenders of liberty, why, why don't they have the public supporting them? Uh, so, yeah, I think we can, I, I think we need to kind of challenge the fundamental assumptions about what the Alamo is about and, and at the same time say, well, maybe, maybe the world is not full of Alamos and there aren't thousands of battles we should be fighting the way Texians died at the Alamo. We have been speaking with Chris Tomlinson, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, which he has written with Brian Burrow and Jason Stanford. Chris is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tomlinson Hill, the remarkable story of two families who share the Tomlinson name, one white, one black, and he produced the award-winning documentary film by the same name. You can follow Chris on Twitter, at C.L. Tomlinson. Chris, I have one last question for you, and I promise... We do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Do you think that in time we will forget the Alamo except as a myth that we realize was a lie all along due to all the kind of political infighting that's going on? Will it just simply become a, you know, an aging building that's forgotten? No, the... We, we won't ever forget the Alamo. Um, the Alamo, as I said, has 
a 300 year history. Amazing and horrible things happened at the Alamo over those 300 years. Um, historic things happened before the first Anglos came to Texas and many fascinating things happened at the Alamo just in, in the last 50 years. So I, I don't think we should forget the Alamo. I think we need to put the myths on a shelf in a box with a clear labor label that says white supremacist legends of the Alamo. And if we want to look at that, at those legends and think about the mythology and think about, um, you know, the complexity of how those myths were created and, and, and propagated, you know, we should be able to do that. But, you know, the, we say that the Alamo is Texas's Western wall. We can bring all the communities together um, in San Antonio. We can share all of their stories about liberty and the struggle for liberty and justice um, without uh, making anyone uncomfortable and without telling any lies. So um, no, uh, despite the name of my book, uh, I don't think we will ever forget the Alamo. Chris, thank you for being on our show, and I look forward to seeing your book featured on Fox News Channel. <laughs> thank you, sir. All right, take care. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help out your sales. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I, I'm sure. All right. <laughs> All right, take care. Chris yeah, Tomlinson, bye. again, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. Follow Chris on Twitter, at C.L. Tomlinson. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell... And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.